Showtime's greatest hero, a serial killer. I'm Joe Fulgham. Hot dogs, ice cream, murder castles. Welcome to the Chicago World's Fair. I'm Kevin Leeson. Top 10 helpful tips for the perfect murder. I'm Torn Atkinson. Tonight on Caustic Soda. I'm Torn. I'm an illustrator and a musician. I'm the lead singer for The Darkest of the Hillside Thickets, which you uh, may hear today in the uh, intermission. Then to my left is Kevin. Uh, I'm Kevin Leeson. I'm a writer and filmmaker as well. I do a podcast with a couple other gentlemen. Including Joe Fulgham. (laughs) I'm Joe Fulgham. I'm a uh, web designer by trade, but have done some improv comedy in the past and enjoy just getting together and talking about stuff with friends. Gruesome stuff. Today, as a very special guest, is Chris Stewart. Hi, guys. He's the head Ghostbuster honcho in the North America. I don't know that's how I want people to open, but I, I'm okay <laughs> with it. Thanks. <laughs> well, Chris, how would you introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, okay, I'm a number one Ghostbuster honcho. I also uh, <laughs> history major with a lifelong love of history, uh, nonstop reading, and I design video games, you know. Just to pay the bills. Yeah, the regular schmear. He's like the it's other good every, life. every Joe in the corner. Today we're talking about the perfect murder. Now, murder, mortis is of course Latin for death and mori to die. Old Norse mord meant slaying. So that's that's the basic etymology of the word murder. The phobia for murder, thanatophobia, necrophobia are both fear of death. Thanatos is some sort of He's a Marvel villain, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Marvel Comics. Welcome Marvel to the podcast, villain. nerd. I think there's there's a Greek titan in there somewhere named Thanatos or something as well, but I'm not 100% sure on that. Just Thanos. Thanos. That's what I'm thinking. Sorry, of. I'm a comic nerd, too. Yeah. Well, I was looking uh, up uh, phobias. I found some forums that were talking about fears and phobias, and there's this one person who wrote that they avoid being alone, that they lock their windows obsessively. A little quote here. I'm terrified to look out windows at night because I'm afraid that I'll see a face looking at me. And I'm afraid to look into mirrors because I'm afraid that someone will be standing behind me. I'm afraid to close my eyes in the shower... Because I'm afraid that when I open them, someone will be standing there. That's a that's that's a terrible. That's a that's a that is a terrible phobia of everything. Do we have any updates on past episodes that we could impart upon our uh, listeners at this stage of the game? I have one. Banks exclamation. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> logged on to the website and commented on our cannibalism episode, pointing out that Torrent quite incorrectly identified the participants in the movie Alive as a Brazilian soccer team when they were in fact a Uruguayan rugby team. I actually knew that, and so I can't believe I didn't call you on it during the podcast itself. That's a failure in your part. It, it if, is. If we question Torin, he beats us. <laughs> it's true. I was cowed. I was cowed by your research and thought you couldn't have dropped the ball that badly. Silence! <laughs> what do we, should we talk about uh, the Yes Men? The Dow Chemical Hoax? From, oh, yeah, From our yeah. Poison episode? Yeah, this is actually uh, from my brother Mike. Came back with this one, uh, an update on the, the, the massive poisoning in India and how the Yes Men, who are famous hoaxsters... I love uh, that word, hoaxsters. <laughs> thank you very much. I'm not 100% sure it actually is a word, <laughs> but I'm rolling with it. I still uh, love They it. got on the BBC claiming to be representatives of Dow Chemical, saying that they were going to fairly compensate all the victims and victims' family of that terrible industrial accident and that as a result they would be selling um, Union Carbide, selling it off to pay for this uh, this compensation. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as a result, the Dow Chemical stocks dropped by 12% in a matter of minutes. And they had to come on, Dow Chemical had to come on uh, the BBC the next day to say that they would not be fairly compensating no. any of the victims <laughs> of this tragedy, that this was all in fact a hoax, and that they had no intention of, of providing any monies whatsoever right, so for the relief of the, the still suffering victims of their... The Bhopal disaster. The Bhopal disaster. Okay, all I know is that when I do get a copy of Chris Premis's DC Adventures game, I'm making a villain called the Hoaxster. The Hoaxster. That's a good one. Didn't you have something to talk, talk about for radiation? Yes. A radiation episode? I brought one. Oh, good. <laughs> I saved it. I didn't put it on the website. The SL1, uh, which stands for Stationary Low Power Reactor Number 1. Uh, a friend of mine gave me a book on uh, uh, horrific, horrific science accidents, and this was Ooh. listed as one of them. What happened is in 61, in Idaho, the military is designing a number of small reactors designed for things like powering stations in the Arctic and stuff like that. And at the time, nobody had put two and two together on, say, having multiple control rods. So this system had exactly one control rod. It's a monorod system. Yeah. Mono- monorod. Monorod. I, when I was 12, I dreamed of owning a monorod someday. 
Basically, there's three guys on site in this test station with the power reactor, and they're supposed to take it out and do some sort of regular maintenance thing. You're only supposed to lift the rod out four inches. And for reasons they're not quite sure of, it got pulled out 20 inches and went critical. That's a significant difference. That's That's more than half. One of the guys was basically in the middle of a messy divorce with his wife, possibly over involvement with one of the other three guys in the station. Oh, it's a dirty triangle with a monorod. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So kind of a murder-suicide is suspected. But anyways, everything went haywire alarms, so they, they go in. You know, everybody's suited up, and they're looking in the room. One guy's still alive crawling towards the door oh no they run in and they grab him and they pull him out and put him in an ambulance and rush him off they're looking around they see the body of the other guy dead they're like okay well we're just gonna have to leave him everybody out and they quickly look around where's the third guy don't know i have been always will be (laughs) your friend (laughs) it's complete madness madness to the point where the ambulance is rushing him he dies en route to which this is the, the first guy. The, the survivor. Yeah. The survivor. At which point, the ambulance driver's orders are, is put this suit on. Okay. Now drive this ambulance into the middle of nowhere, then get out and run. Their whole plan at the time was to just leave the dead guy in the ambulance like he was that irradiated. Wow. They go back in to try to, again, figure out what the hell happened, and they think to look up. <laughs> oh, no! The control <laughs> rod in the critical uh, meltdown had set off a steam explosion. The control rod had basically picked the guy up that was over it and pinned him into the ceiling. So Ooh. they kind of left him there, too, for the time being. A control <laughs> rod kebab. Oh, I forget the numbers. I won't bring them up because it'll just be messy. Everybody was horribly irradiated. Let's put it that way. Even the people going in and protected were way, well past kind of, oh, no. this is healthy. Sort of, they say 22 people were basically irradiated in the process of this whole accident. Just the rescuing? Just the rescuing and stuff like that. Not counting the three dead guys. Oh. The three dead guys are interred in Arlington National Cemetery. 20 feet down, covered in concrete <laughs> and lead. Arlington Cemetery? That's in Fallout 3, the video game. Yes. Yeah. yeah. They should put up those <laughs> giant spikes to warn people away from their irradiated <laughs> bodies. Uh, I have a correction, actually, on myself, given to me by my wife. One of the only comments I ever get on the podcast is when I'm wrong. <laughs> For black holes, I had said I didn't think that the CERN reactor was... Large Hadron the, the lar- Collider. The Large Hadron Collider was uh, trying to make mini black holes, but she corrected me and said that, uh, in fact, that is what they're trying to do, is create a micro-singularity. Does that it's mean one of the many things they they want to do with it? Does so that mean I actually was right? Yes, That's right. you were right, sir. Woohoo! Yay. It's the first time I actually out uh, researched somebody. <laughs> Let's talk about murder then. Perfect. Since we're all here, <laughs> perfect murder. That's the sound of me rubbing my hands together. With it's a sound <laughs> I've heard many times. I was gonna say with I was gonna say with glee. There is the point that if it is the perfect murder, how could we possibly talk about it? We wouldn't even know. It does happen. It can happen. That's for sure. You cannot plan for it. And if you cannot plan for it, then by definition, you can't really have it. So it's this weird... But there are. There's premeditated murder. I mean, it happens all the time. First degree. That's murder pre- in the first that's degree. That's premeditated. But this, this is what it comes down to. Perfect by definition means you get away with it. That, that is, is a this, very this, broad this, topic. Th- this sounds like if a tree falls in the forest kind of conversation. If a murder is never discovered, did if it actually happen? If a murder is happen? perfect... Well, is there anyone to hear it? <laughs> let, let, me, let me start with this little factoid. So in 2004, there were just over 16,000 murders in the United States. Statistically, according to FBI, something like 34, 35% of them or whatever were not solved. They were not closed right. that year, which means basically in that year... 5,000 or so 6,000 or so unsolved murders. And if you then tie in the fact that they say that murders are solved in the first 48 hours or whatever, right. the, 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 the long investigation actually tends to be rarer and Fruitless. rarer. Even conservative numbers means that's a lot of people getting murdered and nobody getting caught. So ergo, perfect murders do exist. The trick hmm. is, is these people probably weren't planning the perfect murder. Perfect murders all come down to various circumstances. And if they all line up, awesome. The thing is, is these circumstances are outside of your control most of the time. Hence why you can't plan a perfect murder. To my thinking, the perfect murder would be something that comes off as an accident. Okay. So it's, you know, the police don't even suspect that it's a murder. Oh, right, of course. Like, they get a death certificate saying accidental death. Little arsenic and old lace. I remember that movie. Yeah, that was a great movie. But little old ladies murdering their borders so they can take their money. So there's another group of statistics we can cram in. Say, for example, missing persons. Most of those people, unfortunately, probably are either through misadventure or deliberate circumstances, are dead. But since they are, you know, nobody's found and there's nothing else to suspect foul play, foul play, etc. So there's an even perfecter example of perfect murder. And that's going to be hey, my you, DC Adventures uh, character, Misadventure. <laughs> uh, look, uh, Not before married. We, before we move ahead, if he gets hoaxer, I get perfecter. Okay. Perfecter. Just, all right, thank you. Jeez. 
Mm -hmm. We're we're perfectly within our rights to talk about perfect murders that were planned to be perfect murders but didn't go off perfectly. Right. It's going to be kind of hard to talk about those ones where they didn't even know it was murder because if it was perfect in that definition, then we'll just be talking about people who died. Maybe it was a murder, but we don't know because it was perfect. You can talk about guys like Klaus von Bülow who uh, thought they were going to get away with it and they got convicted and then it got overturned on appeal, you know, in Injecting the drugs into his I comatose wife. I don't know, but tell, tell me more about that. He was married to this uh, rich New York socialite, and he was uh, from a long line of European aristocracy, and they had several children. And uh, his wife had a, some sort of seizure attack and went into a coma for years and years and years. And then one day she died. Her children accused Klaus, her second husband, of murdering her. Okay. By injecting some sort of drug into her that was impossible to detect and whatnot. The big controversy was was that it was the children themselves that searched the premises and found this syringe which had this drug in there that would have performed this job and turned it over to the police. But, of course, they had a vested interest in Klaus going to jail for the rest of his life because then they would inherit all the money. And So he was initially convicted of uh, murdering Sonny Von Bulow. Or maybe it was even attempted murder because maybe she hadn't even died by that point. But Mm -hmm. she was in this long-term coma. And then it was eventually overturned upon appeal. Was this a movie? Did they make this into a movie with Jeremy yeah. Irons? Is Jeremy that? Irons okay. played Klaus von Bülow. Right. Absolutely. Okay. No, it's it's coming back to me. Yeah. Now. You know, I mean, there is a perfect murder gone awry. If it was in fact even a murder. Whenever I hear Klaus von Bülow, I think of the actor and from uh, from, uh, from Strange Brew. From Strange Brew <laughs> and Conan. Max von Sydow. Max von, Max von Sydow. Sydow. <laughs> I could crush your head like a nut. But I won't. But I need you. I need you. So I won't. <laughs> I'll just jump back in here. Cause Please do. When you start digging, we are just when you start <laughs> digging into murder, everybody's brains will start turning up stuff. Trust me. Getting away with perfect murder kind of relates to one simple fact, and that is your connection to your victim. Which um, is why so many serial killers get away with it for so long, right? With no connection. Exactly. So most crimes, when crimes happen, uh, the, statistically, detectives will always tell you they start looking at family and friends first. Because more often than not, it is somebody that knew the victim. So that's where you start. And, of course, once you have a place to start and you start digging and you dig hard enough, stuff churns up. Uh, people's stories don't match up, so you start leaning on that. You definitely get a clearer picture of that if you ever watch that show, The First 48, about the uh, homicide investigators and their first 48 hours on the case. Mm. You really realize that without those personal connections, it would be almost impossible for these yeah. investigators to solve these crimes. That's one aspect, is your disconnect from the victim. The, the vic- related to it, then, is someone's going to watch your back. Uh, alibis? Uh, not, not, no, not alibis, because once they get to that point, again, there's trouble. What it amounts to is basically someone is obfuscating your connection to the victim. So the simplest way to, is to go historical on, uh, on your asses here, Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm. So nobody knows who the hell Jack the Ripper is. Jack the Ripper got away with what are basically considered the most horrific crimes, well, to that date, and still they mm-hmm. kind of resonate through time. Never figured out who he was, although there are you know fairly solid theories going on. One, and it is kind of discounted, is that he's just random crazy dude. And by definition, then, random crazy dude wandering around the streets of London killing people, you'll never figure out who random crazy right. dude is. And there's actually one of his letters. He, he killed two women in one night, and one of them he copped to later in one of his letters. But apparently, they would not have figured it out just by looking at her based on the fact that she didn't quite fit the M.O. of the rest. And he even said in his letter that it was kind of rushed and he got kind of worried. So even Uh he was concerned that, I mean, he's in the middle of London. If he keeps doing it long enough, somebody just by accident may stumble upon him and then trouble. The other theories tend to relate to the surgical skill of of the murders suggested, for example, that... um, A doctor or a butcher. And there's, I think, a couple of names of a a high society, a a doctor of high society. He'll never get caught just because in London high society he's just beyond repro- not beyond reproach but of course uh, england at that time certain there was certainly a certain class thing you didn't go after somebody unless you knew for sure at that yeah, level england at that time it doesn't exist today plus plus there was uh, probably a lot of the friends of friends who were in a position to just say don't look over here go look for the filthy crazy guy that killed these women sort of thing right and then there's also another theory that it might have been related to the royal family, which is just, of course, the ultimate version of... Tabloid. There's, there's no murderer here. Sensationalism. <laughs> so those are, those are kind of the two things. But basically, the minute you start looking at them, the minute they start to fall apart. And, and they're not specific to Jack the Ripper. I mean, these happen all the time. Yeah, there was the torso killer in Cleveland... You know, well, I, and not, not just a matter of serial killers, but the, those two things still operate throughout time. Uh, mob hitmen, again, no real connection to their victims, 
but they already have automatically have a tie to somebody who's going to shield them. But those guys will obviously only shield them up to the point where they're at risk. So hitmen do get caught quite often. Has anybody heard about this hitman who uh, I saw an interview with him about two or three years ago on A&E? They did like a two-hour profile on him. A hitman for the mob in New Jersey, I believe. When he got recruited, he had been a serial killer. Like he had he had done three killings just for fun, right. and then he got recruited by the mob to become a mob hitman. And yeah, he uh, he thinks that he's killed somewhere in the range of hundreds of people. He uh, he owned a an auto body shop, so he had a lot of industrial material, and he used to like to dump bodies in oil drums and then abandon them somewhere or bury them oh. you know it becomes one of those situations where you got these killers who are kind of trying to get caught because he left the oil drum at the local gas station with his dead body in it <laughs> and he would go to the diner at the gas station every day to have lunch and he'd like look at the the, the barrel with the body in it, knowing there was a body and he kind of got a thrill out of that right. one day he showed up and the barrel was gone and there was never any news about this body or whatever so he, he doesn't know what happened to it and this guy just disappeared and no one ever heard from him again. And, you know, But this guy was a really interesting guy. His nickname was the Iceman because he was a cold and calculating killer. Oh. He was yeah. really good in Top Gun, too. He's as cold <laughs> as ice. He claims that he used to like to um, give people cyanide. He would go to where somebody was having dinner and slip some stuff into their meal before he came out of the kitchen. He found out one guy, one of his victims was gay, so he followed him to a gay bar and injected him with cyanide on the dance floor. I bumped up against him and jabbed him. Peculiar. Yeah, this guy was quite an interesting character. But yeah, he had uh, committed multiple murders before he became a mob hitman, and so it was particularly wow. suited yeah. to the occupation. He had a good resume. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he strangled a guy in an alley behind a nightclub one time because uh, the guy sassed him in line. And that's he, why you should never budge. <laughs> That's your that's that's your anti-budging tip there, kids. You hit on the, the next step, which is if you move away from hitmen to, say, serial killers, guys who are loan operators, you know, once computer databases hit and stuff like that, it became a lot easier to spot trends to go, holy crap, there's some guy wandering the states. And they're still working out studies that, because nobody was really paying attention to serial killers way back when, but there's some suspicions that as the uh, the highway system in the United States improved and improved, that just made things even messier because that's when guys started wandering. It was easier to wander the, the length and breadth of the United States or wherever to start killing. So the, the thing is with those guys, though, although they are perfectly detached and they've minimized, you know, so if they're careful, they minimize the risk of somebody spotting them or whatever. If they have a, met, a system, they've minimized their risk. The trouble is, is they're technically crazy. And technically crazy people are then going to start screwing up. Like you said, some guys just want to get caught. Right. Jack, Jack the Ripper liked to boast about what he was up to and all that. Oh, the BTK guy used to send photos of himself with his victims, right? BTK? Bind, torture, kill. Because oh. uh, that was his method. He would that tie them up and torture them and then kill them. And then he would disguise himself with a mask and whatnot, take pictures of himself with his victims and then mail those pictures to the police. It's kind of like the Riddler, but... Different. <laughs> See, if it happened uh, ten years later, he would have swirled his face in Photoshop, and they would have caught him like that. But no, he had to use a mask. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, he actually got caught because he was corresponding with the police. Uh, he asked the police officer that he was corresponding with whether or not the, a computer disk could be traced in any way, shape, or form. To which the police replied, <clears throat> "No, of course not." <laughs> So then he uh, loaded a bunch of digital files and letters and all this content about his uh, crimes onto the computer at his local church. And is, so that a, is that a three and a quarter floppy? It was a three and a quarter floppy, and he mailed it to the police, and the police computer forensic department figured out which computer this was used on in about 18 seconds flat. Right. And they went down there and sort of took their profile with them and figured out who was a perfect match. All right, churchies. And they trailed him for about a couple of days and went, you know what, we're not going to risk this any longer. We're just going to scoop him up. Yeah, let's let's watch him till he kills again, just to be really sure. Yeah. Have there been any Safe. sensational serial killers caught in Vancouver? I'm not. Well, the Green River Killer, of course, in uh, mm -hmm. Washington State, oh. uh, turned Close. out to be Gary Ridgway. That was, uh, and then of course there's the Pig Farmer. The, yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, uh, he's pretty sensational. He's there been any sensational? Yeah, the guy who killed all those dozens and dozens of prostitutes and then fed them to his pigs. Then there's like a snatch. Uh, also, Clifford Olson. Uh, Clifford Olson, the child killer. I want right. to talk more about the pig killer. How did he get caught? Because that would tie back into this whole thing about crazy dudes are eventually going to get caught. It was a that tip from a uh, ex-girlfriend slash former prostitute right. who said that uh, you know he had some sexual proclivities uh, that were, let's say, on the sadomasochistic side. Uh, and he used to brag about, if she ever left him and whatnot, that she would end up getting eaten by his pigs like all those other girls that oh, eaten by his pigs. This was, his name was Robert Picton. That's, That's right. right. That's right. Picton the pig farmer. And, uh, and so, yeah, she gave him a tip and... 
They took a warrant and, and uh, rooted around his property and found DNA material of some of the missing ladies. How many people did he kill? They don't know exactly. 30 some odd. Yeah, he's he's being, he's being charged estimate. for something like half that or something. Like yeah. So if he had, if yeah, he had stopped, he's being charged in he was stopped at a certain point, he was then con- that may have been the perfect murder. He was convicted of the second degree murders of six women, uh, but he's also been charged in the deaths of an additional 20. However, the Crown has reported that uh, Picton told the officer that he wanted to kill another woman to make it an even 50. Ah, so he claims 49. If he hadn't have bragged to this prostitute that he was dating... Then we may never know. Then we may never have known. The, the pig farm may, may have gotten away with it. A little bit of background about that. Apparently there's a big word on the street about some kind of serial killer killing uh, Vancouver prostitutes, and there was not a lot of push behind the police to bother looking into it. They just thought that they were overdoses oh, or women who'd run right. away or, or something like that. They for, didn't y- for years and years, that was sort of top topic in the news about these women in the downtown east side disappearing. And nobody no, nobody in the police believed that it was some kind of serial killer. And then, of course, they're proven wrong when they yeah. start Well, it's a pretty high-risk farm. Yeah. Pretty high-risk group, drug-addicted prostitutes kind of fall off the grid pretty regularly, I, I would w- imagine. I would guess so. There have been, I know, pushes here in Vancouver to try to bring uh, the sex trade under the auspices of the government. So the fact that all these women died is not enough incentive for them to make sure that they're, you know, not yeah. getting addicted to drugs and that they're not, you know, well, have apparently diseases. We've, uh, apparently we're kind of lax here on prostitution. I don't know personally, but I understand that there are a lot of massage houses, I'm using air quotes, in Vancouver that are basically uh, where they have prostitution brothels is the word and that the police know and that they just kind of turn a, bl- turn a blind eye to it as long as there are no problems for anything else right. but back to the perfect murders topic I guess mm-hmm. the, the no, lesson prostitution. The, the lesson the lesson <laughs> to be learned here stop bragging you uh, seriously yeah, improve your chances for murderers. of not getting caught plain crazy will do it too and the reason I brought up who was a crazy nut job in Vancouver was I lived in Calgary for a large chunk of my life and that's when they where they caught Charles Ng him and another guy in California the guy had a, a cottage and between the two of them killed like a couple of dozen women or what went to the bay which the press uh, the United States press likes to refer to as a hardware store what did they know uh, <laughs> and tried to steal a hammer and security went after him chased him into the parking lot two of them he pulled a gun shot one guy in the hand they wrestle him to the ground he's arrested and he basically starts to talk that's another one of those the guy seems to want to get caught there's really no end stealing in stealing a hammer stealing paying a, a 1499 or whatever yeah, exactly and then and then when the security guard chases you instead of giving the hammer back and maybe a shoplifting slap on the wrist he shoot him in the hand shoot him in the hand <laughs> or or just or the broken fits because apparently in his early life he was always running into trouble he'd roll kids at school for their lunch money or, and would cut, get caught shoplifting so some part of him whether he wanted to get caught or not but just part of him was broken enough that he was going to do something stupid and, and aren't bullets fairly expensive up here in canada like <laughs> like <laughs> Maybe a couple shots would be the price of a cheap hammer. <laughs> and not to mention that he had it as a handgun uh, to boot. I'm sure coming back from the California, they were like, are you going to be shooting that, sir? Uh, no. <laughs> well, all right, then. Come on in. <laughs> I can only think of uh, exactly one instance that perfectly fits the definition of uh, a perfect murder. A murder-suicide. Ah. You plan it. You execute it, and you are never going to be uh, jailed for it. Your <laughs> plan involved basically taking yourself out of the equation. You got exactly what you wanted, and law will, will not touch you. Now, how many murder-suicides are planned as murder-suicides? Do, do you know any idea of the statistics of how many are planned to be, I'm going to kill her and then kill myself, and, and how compared to how many are, I, damn you woman, kill, oh no, I killed her, and then kill That's true. The, a certain percentage of them probably do fall under the category of... Acts of passion. There are many, many, many of them that include, like, the guys walking into a McDonald's. That was their plan. They are going to go in. They are going to shoot right. whoever's there. And they do not want to get caught, so they know that they're out is going to kill themselves. So, yeah, a guy did that in the 80s, didn't he? Yeah, it's happened a few times. Oh, and, okay. And the Columbine kids. Well, they didn't plan on killing themselves. They were taken out, as I recall. No, no, they shot themselves. Did they? Absolutely. They were yeah. all dead by the time they uh, went into the building, and that was... Part of the plan all along. Okay, yep. so they fall into that category as well. They premeditated the murder, they went in, they killed, and then to avoid prosecution, uh, took themselves out of the equation. To avoid repercussions. Which, you have to admit, is kind of a downside because, again, perfect murder ideally suggests that you get away with it and keep on living. I have a personal 
murder suicide story. I could tell. Oh my, Joe, dial nine one. Yeah, I <laughs> cut your arm. Dial one again. I'm assuming the story is not going to end with and then I committed suicide. And then on, on during the seventh episode of Caustic Soda, the podcast, <laughs> I killed everyone. I'm so glad I'm closest to the door. <laughs> this is when I was living in Chilliwack. My father had a partnership with another guy with a courier company, and my brother was working for that courier company. Do you remember this, I, Joe? I, I remember the... Uh, do you want me to say the name of the, of the company? No, probably or, not. Yeah, okay. Because it probably still exists. It, yeah, in fact, it okay. does. I do remember this. Yeah, it's like, a, remember it's the... like a franchise or something like okay. that. So my brother was basically driving trucks around. And he came into work one morning. And the garage door was open. And usually he's the first one there. So that was unusual. So he goes in. And, and then while, just while he's going in, another co-worker uh, arrives at the, at the shop. And inside is a car. It's got a hose coming from, from the exhaust going into, taped into, the, into the, the window. And in it is my father's business partner and his wife. Wow. Ouch. The wife had been shot in the head with a gun, but the boss was still in the car, just kind of like, Ugh. My brother, being the cool-headed guy that he is, didn't throw up. Whereas the other guy did throw up and called, uh, you know, called nine one one and all of that, and uh, and the perpetrator subsequently perished from. No, the- no, he was he he didn't die. Ah, so so attempted murder suicide. Well, or murder attempted suicide. Something along those lines. I dated a nurse at one point in time in my life, and uh, she had this one stint in the emergency room, and they. You know, you, often you have suicide cases come in, yeah. and a re- they used to refer to them as successful or unsuccessful suicide attempts. Right. Uh, they since disavowed them of that terminology because it connoted a good or a bad result, and they didn't want to give it any sort of that right. weight. Right. So now they're uh, instructed to refer to them as complete or incomplete. Incomplete, right. So this is an incomplete suicide attempt. This was attempt. incomplete suicide attempt. Uh, they still give them gold stars, though. Which <laughs> <laughs> so uh, here's the hilarious part of this story. Please. <laughs> um, it's actually not that hilarious. But I was my parents were actually on vacation in the interior somewhere. So when they got the call, they were considering coming back, you know, canceling their vacation and whatnot. I was watching their house, basically. But unbeknownst to them, I had a lady friend along with me. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I was hoping that they wouldn't come back selfishly <laughs> so that I continue my, my own personal vacation. The other bonus is, of course, the, the franchise, the outlet was dissolved and, right. uh, and the business partnership was also naturally dissolved. And uh, I got a lot of office furniture and knickknacks out of the deal. So well, luckily I didn't experience any, any of it firsthand. So there's the silver I just lining got, yeah, I just to murder-suicide. <laughs> exactly. Free uh, or cheap office furniture. Yeah, well, the time has flown by, actually. An office actually. desk and, uh, and a filing cabinet. We're going to listen to the Darkest of the Hillside Thickets song available on Rock Band 2. It's called... Shh. I understand. 
unfazed, unclean, unsaid, unkind, undead, unwind. No fuse, no crime, no plans, no time, no push, no shove, no God, no hope, no black, no white, no source of blood, no second chance, no end inside, no flesh, no Perfect murder. Our topic of conversation today. The perfect podcast. Our guest, uh, Chris Stewart, I think has some murder myths he wants to debunk. There are three uh, legal myths that I've brought up that relate to the, the idea of a perfect murder that people uh, kind of latch on to, but are in fact absolutely wrong. Let's see here. What was the year? 1924. So there was an attorney, George Remus, who was did a lot of work for uh, bootleggers, ended up going to jail, uh, at which point the FBI or G-Man or whatever that uh, helped take him down convinced the wife to leave him. So he gets out of jail, finds wife is gone, tracks her down, shoots her. He's caught. They take him to court. Remember, crime of passion and you know, husband out of jail. Yeah, okay. They pretty much caught him. Pretty easy. It goes to court, and it was one of the first times that they argued he can't be held accountable. He's nuts. And the court goes, famously at the time, all right, off to the booby hatch you go. To which he's like, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. And he's like, you just proved yourself nuts. You're off to the nut hatch. To which, and this is the, the weird part and taught everybody the downside of the crazy defense, he basically appealed his own nuts defense. After he learned what it meant. <laughs> After arguing that he was in fact crazy, he then appealed to prove that he was not crazy and ended up going to just normal jail jail for murdering his wife. It got the nickname the Twinkie defense. Well, the Twinkie defense was <laughs> used in the Harvey Milk one. The Harvey Milk one. He, he never argued. It was kind of a media thing that they argued that because he was hopped up on sugar, that's kind of why he went. Well, his he, blood sugar was <laughs> off the charts or something. <laughs> and they called it the Twinkie defense, although he they never argued that. Because uh, he, he ate too many Twinkies. But they did argue that it was some sort of extenuating circumstances that he was just kind of off his game. And so this is this and is it'll the, never happen again. This is the kissing cousin to the, the, the crazy thing and that you're trying to argue. And you've, there's been Not, a number of them over the years, like the, the fugue state is a good one. Oh, right. they have no recollection, sleepwalking, whatever, anything that can be filed they try to argue yes they did it but they weren't really there or in charge you know, right. they weren't themselves yeah. not guilty by reason of mental defect pretty much temporary insanity Temporary. They, they are very, very difficult, and they do not work. Uh, but uh, famously, we hear about them. Like The other one is uh, the idea of no body, the idea that if there's no body, there's no crime, and that's, in fact, false. It comes from people not understanding Latin, because in, <laughs> in North America, they don't teach us Latin in school, so we're kind of idiots about it. Corpus delecti is the Latin legal term, which means... Uh, Delicious corpse. <laughs> people assume that's literally no body, no crime, and it means, no, the body of the crime. Hence all these people that get no body, but they saw you go in there, you came out covered in blood, you had a fight with them the night before. There's more than enough evidence that this person who has disappeared probably disappeared because you killed them. I believe they call that a circumstantial case. It's kind of died off. Uh, for the longest time, it was get rid of the body. People would do come up with crazy ways to get rid of the body. And they're not entirely wrong, because if you can't find the body, people may not twig to that there was a murder sort of mm -hmm. thing. But again... Yeah. It kind of shifted over the years away from that nobody, no crime, and into nobody, uh, no evidence. Because, of course, as forensics improved, if there's no body showing what they were stabbed with or poisoned mm -hmm. with or whatever, it's harder to backtrack. That's two. And then three is the most famous, which is the idea of double jeopardy. Cannot be charged with the same crime twice. So in Hollywood, it got into this idea of... In fact, I, there's a movie called Double Jeopardy starring Ashley... Ashley Hotpants. 
What, what's the last name? I was going to say Ashley Simpson, but that's Ashley not Judd? it. Ashley Judd? Ashley Judd. And Cranky McDude. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Tommy Lee Jones. Um, <laughs> the, these movies and, and the, the, the books and all that, that kind of deal, they deal with this idea that somebody is wrongfully accused for a murder, gets out for whatever reason, then actually commits the murder, and then can't go to jail for it. Well, that's patently false. What? Hollywood lied to us? <laughs> Ashley Judd lied to us? After she was in that Star Trek episode and I warmed up to well, her? Well, this is it. They cheated. they cheated in that movie because she ended up killing her husband who faked his own death and blamed her as an act of self-defense. So the whole idea, though, is that somebody fakes their death, you get pinned for it. Then you go after them and you kill them. And thus, since you've served your time and been charged for it, you cannot go back to, you know, you cannot be charged for it again. You get, uh, I don't remember killing him. Well, that's manslaughter. Off to jail you go for whatever. You get out of four years, you track down your husband, you kill him. Well, that's cold-blooded first-degree murder of your husband, and they'll happily bring it all back. So what we've learned, Ashley Judd, liar extraordinaire. Never trust a Judd. I'm tisking. Yeah, we can hear that. <laughs> it's not like shaking your finger. <laughs> Should we talk about the murder mansion then? What is it? Called? What is it called? Murder Castle. Murder Castle. Murder Castle. Sounds like where I go to get my death burger. <laughs> Sounds like uh, an amusement park ride. Could it be an amusement park ride. Murder Castle. Yeah, absolutely. But Are there was you man enough to face the Murder Castle ride. H. H. Holmes. Triple H. The original Triple H. Oh, yeah! <laughs> was a pharmacist who built a hotel, but he used several different contractors, so none of them would know the inner workings of his design. Because it was like a medieval castle with lots of trap doors and mazes. and. Uh, most rooms were airtight and had gas vents installed in them so he could gas you in your sleep, and then they would have trap doors that would dump your body directly into the basement where he could strip your bones of the flesh and meaty parts and sell your skeleton to schools <laughs> and for scientific experimentation. Mm-hmm. This is how he uh, supplemented his income. It was during the uh, Chicago World's Fair, so there were a lot of people right. wandering in and out of town, and they would stay at his hotel because there was a shortage of places to stay. Once and they you would, check in, you don't check out. You do not <laughs> check out. And the human hotel. He was one of these pioneers of uh, having his employees take out life insurance policies, but he would be the beneficiary, and then they would disappear, and he would collect. Wow. I know that there's some corporations, uh, Walmart does that right now. Oh today. my god, Walmart! <laughs> Walmart, maybe they have their own murder castle, but... <laughs> I'm sure they have many. But H.H. H. Holmes sort of pioneered this idea. So this went on for how long? Uh, several years, until he got to the point where he thought people might be figuring out what was going on, and uh, he faked his own death, and this was, in fact, his undoing. He would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for those rotten kids. <laughs> <laughs> so it's old man Holmes from the, from the Castle Hotel. They, they pull the rubber mask off, and he's like, uh, no, he, uh, he faked his own death, and of course, to collect the insurance money on his own death, he needed to enlist a compatriot. And then about halfway through the plot... He became fearful that this guy would either turn him in and, or steal the money and what are you going to do? You're supposed to be dead kind of thing. They went on the road and he killed him on the road and then pretended to be that guy to collect the life insurance on his own death. And it was in the correspondence with his, with this gentleman's wife, his straw man's wife, okay. that the wife became kind of suspicious that she wasn't corresponding with oh, her my actual sweetie, husband. My sweetie would never say desiccated husk <laughs> <laughs> we're doing fine sweetie and we'll be back in time for that thing that you said that we should do with <laughs> or maybe he just your mother and or father maybe he just forgot her birthday no i do you know i love to cuddle <laughs> you're <laughs> not my <laughs> husband <laughs> so basically the chicago world world's fair was brought so many new innovations to the world to the point of absurdity I just can't understand the, the drive that and these murder. guys have. I, I would be too lazy to be any kind of effective serial killer. Like, I, the guy had a castle hotel built. Hey, you got to want it, like, Joe. You I know. I know. Yeah. I, I would just be the, the, the slacker of serial killers if I... You would be in the cubicle pool of the <laughs> serial killer world. You'd never make That's it to right. the corner office. I'd be like, uh, I could stab her, but uh, my elbow kind of hurts. <laughs> 
Oh yeah, and then boiling her body until you could sell the skeleton for scientific experimentation. Well, she's dead. Then she's dead. Wait, and I gotta carry well, this, her. This is why there'll never be a serial killer that is not crazy, right? Like if you assume that the lone serial killer is the perfect murderer, except for they're crazy and they're gonna trip up or do something crazy at some point, it means one of us, not the rest of the world, literally us four, yeah. have to get into our <laughs> head to just go kill somebody randomly and we never will because we're wired correctly so that the thought of killing somebody just does not make sense it's well okay Torrin's kind of not responding <laughs> there which well you know I've, the the pop culture crossover for this the uh, gentleman by the name of Rick Geary has a series of graphic novels comic books about Victorian era criminals and H.H. Uh, H. Holmes and his murder castle is an excellent excellent book of Rick Geary's I think I've seen this. Yeah, the Victorian era crime series. It's outstanding. He actually huh. has a, sort of one of those top-down cutaways of the murder castle. The cross section, the, the dead end yeah. hallways, and oh. the trap doors into the basement, and the gas vents, and the the whole nine yards. It's laid out there. So if anybody wants to see how this murder castle operated, they can just uh, go out and find Rick Geary's H. H. Holmes. We'll try edition. to find. I'll try to find a link for that and put yeah. it up on the website. Yeah, it's outstanding. I think it grew Stephen out of, Beastie should put it in one of his incredible cross section books. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think his book probably grew out of some of the the references I brought. I brought with me a couple of the, or paradox the big press. book of thugs and the big book big of book little of criminals. Little criminals um, and Gary does a bunch of stories in them. Which that guy's is, sick. Uh, I watched Rope finally. Ah, uh, outstanding. Alfred Hitchcock, who, by the way, I forgot to mention, is our pinup. For this episode. Yeah, so what can we say about that uh, movie? There's two young gentlemen who, uh, for kicks, decide to uh, kill one of their friends, and then as the, like pièce, do. As the pièce de résistance, they uh, have a dinner party. They have a dinner party over his corpse. On a and this this isn't actually a spoiler. All this this happens in the first minute and a half yeah, of the movie. Absolutely. That's, that's how the movie opens up. So they invite a bunch of people over to have dinner, and and how come Johnny isn't here? I can't remember. The and they've name. left uh, they've left clues around the room. Uh, because they think that they are too smart mm. for anybody to figure out what they've just done. But then Jimmy Stewart, he's the old professor. Puts it all together, perhaps? It sounds like the dark version of Weekend at Bernie's. The, and, th- and that movie is shot in how many shots? It's shot in continuous shots. Uh, a so series of continuous shots. I mean, they had to cut to replace the Well, I was, I was watching it. film. But also, I noticed that they all always changed like the lighting and the uh, from the coming up from the window and the cityscape and everything. Yeah, very uh, stagey. Yeah, but it wasn't like they were trying to hide when they would cut because they would always like zoom into the, somebody's back or something like that. Yeah, and go black for a second. But the so. the only reason they made any cuts at all was because they had to replace the film. They had to replace the the, the film canister on top of mm. the camera. But uh, it, it's it's done. I think in somewhere in the ballpark of a half a dozen continuous shots. So it's a it's a technical feat as well wow. as a as a masterful writing. Good movie, yeah. Yeah, great movie. Great movie. And that reminds me of the real life killing uh, thrill killers. Uh, Leopold and Loeb, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb from 1924. A couple of guys who wanted to do a murder because they were bored. Yeah, some see privileged Harvard students who were the sons of like Jewish industrialists. And they decided they decided to pick somebody at random from Harvard uh, on a certain day. They planned it out meticulously, but they didn't they didn't plan out who they were going to get. Yeah. While they were on the campus, they're like, "Oh no, not that person because of this and other." And then uh, along comes um, Bobby Franks, fourteen year old. They uh, lure him into their rented car, stab him in the head with a chisel, and shove a cloth down his throat so he suffocates as well. Then they dump him in a culvert. Yeah. They, they say they've kidnapped him. They they kill him right away. Right. But they only they only say that he's been kidnapped. So they call his dad and then tell him to meet to to bring a bunch of money to a drugstore. The dad forgets the address of the drugstore, never shows up. So that's one thing that goes wrong in a perfect murder. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't think I don't think this has the hallmarks of a perfect murder from the get. No, but that's that's kind of what they, their, their idea was. Yeah, we'll, I mean, we'll do we'll do this perfect murder if they had never maybe made ransom demands and uh, yeah. not killed him inside a rented car and all the rest of this stuff. He probably would have been. The police didn't have any idea until they were just kind of like interviewing and interviewing, and they got these two guys in separate rooms and asked them where they were and what they were doing, and the stories didn't match up, and so then they continue the investigation and uh, I think one of the things that was notable from a press perspective I know it was heavily covered yeah it was huge in the, it was in the press in the day. and actually and they went to they because were, they both freely admitted that there was no real motive for the crime they right. were just right. thrill killers exactly they just decided to do it on a whim and how do you how do you do that hey Torrin um, 
So like next week, I was thinking, <laughs> you know, um, we should, yeah, how we should we should kill somebody? How well, that was one gross. of the things. Was the one that survived through his sentence definitely <laughs> said that it was the other guy who was the mastermind? Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of convincible, convincing what he writes about him and how he thought and all that kind of stuff like that. They're both very well educated, so, you know, he could be a very good liar or whatever. But he did, there does seem to be, you know, it's definitely, they didn't come to this conclusion, like, totally like minded. Right, but, like, you, so you, your buddy brings it up and you go, okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. sure. Yeah. Hey, yeah I, I, you I, know, that, that would be fun. You know, I'm kind of bored of uh, being rich and having sex with hot girls while attending Harvard. I, I don't have anything else going on Sunday afternoon. Yeah, let's go. I'm not really I, excited about the football game. And how do you, you how do you even bring it up? You know what they you were do? close. They were close friends. Okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, do you know for a fact that Leopold and Loeb were the influence for the rope plot? I don't know, but... Uh, they seem very similar in a lot of They seem very ways. similar in the way that they decide, they're, you know, they're young, they're prosperous, they're bored, they decide to murder someone kind the, of just What, what year kicks. was rope? The uh, interesting thing about that case, though, is Clarence Darrow defended the boys and he went on to, to do the, the Scopes Monkey Trial case. You can say um, the, you can say the words. <laughs> I have my mic turned down. Use your words. Uh, 1948 <laughs> is rope. 1948 for rope. So 20 years after the Leopold and Loeb events, yeah, yeah, yeah. and the, the original play was inspired by the real life murder of 14 year old Bobby Franks in 1934. Well, yeah. there you go. Oh, yeah. So you surmised it ding, all ding. on your lonesome. There you go. So my favorite perfect murder film slash TV is is got to definitely be the Dexter series. Now, yeah. do, you, do you guys know about Dexter at all? I haven't sat down to watch them yet. Dexter is, of course, it's fiction. It's about a serial killer who uh, works for the Miami Metro Police Department as a blood splatter uh, analyst. He was adopted by a cop when he was uh, quite young after his mother was murdered. And his father recognized in him his sociopathic tendencies and knew, I guess, from the experience of dealing with criminals like this, that it wasn't something that he could stop, only redirect. So his father gave him a code to only kill other serial killers. Oh, so the whole who, serial- who he could determine was, were definitely guilty. So this is a, this is kind of a takeoff on the whole fact that serial killers have a tendency to have a pattern. Right. And so the the established pattern for Dexter, he would kill other serial killers. Right. Yeah. And growing up, he would. St- start to murder animals and stuff like that and and would get a little bit more ritualistic about it and his father found out and, and so he redirected him towards doing it for the good of society and that's really cool because you think he's kind of a hero uh, that's a definitely the, anti-hero but yeah but at the same the time punisher. when he catches them he straps them down to a table uh, all covered in uh, plastic wrap so that it's just like lots and lots of plastic wrap naked in a room covered in bags because he's a forensic analyst. He knows how to cover everything right. up perfectly. Right. He has it all prepared ahead of time. He only grabs them when he knows he can do it. And then he like cuts their cheek and puts the blood on a slide and that's his little collection. So he's got a little collection of all these, oh. these little blood slides from every single person he's killed. Then he cuts them all up, puts them in plastic bags, takes them on his boat and drops them off, uh, off the shore of Miami with rocks in the bags. It's brilliant. I mean, the premise alone. Uh, Mike, the premise alone is absolute genius. And Michael C. Hall is an amazing actor. Uh, he played the. Uh, he was in uh, Six Feet Under as uh, he was the gay brother, and it's based on a series of novels. Uh, from what I hear, uh, the, the hullabaloo on the internet, uh, the series has ended up being much, much better than the novels. The novels. A rare occurrence. Yeah, the novels apparently fell into kind of some kind of weird dark passenger demonic possession kind of craziness right, supernatural uh, thing a little more supernatural uh this is v- much more grounded in reality and psychoses and character building and cathartic killing of utter bastards like he shows the people he's killing photos of their victims and like berates them for the evil they did while he does evil to them uh it's it's really cool highly recommended you know i read an article once when csi really first hit the scene and there was mm-hmm. kind of a concern amongst amongst law enforcement who were concerned that csi was going to kind of give away a lot of the forensic right. secrets and that and people were going to figure out give criminals an upper more hand information on mm-hmm. how to and i actually just read something very short while ago mm-hmm. again where they were sort of revisiting this issue now that it's so pervasive yeah it turns out the exact opposite is turning to be true oh. because there's so many hollywoodisms there's so many right. misconceptions it, in the CSI shows themselves right. that it's giving some criminals a false sense of security about how hard it is to track them down and so they're actually criminals are getting sloppier 
some of the police departments have found that that they'll be they'll catch somebody and their reaction once they're faced that's with the body. That's not how it worked on CSI. That's not that's not that's not how it worked. Hey, dude, they, they did the same thing on CSI. The guy got away with it. What the hell? I've also heard that there's an effect on jurors, though, uh, making it oh, harder yeah. to to convict people because they're demanding the more perfect evidence that they see on CSI. Right. Right. Um, so easier to catch the criminals, harder to harder convict. To convict. How ironic. Yeah. I would recommend, since I brought him up, that people track down not the movie, but the book, From Hell, which is Alan Moore, right. which oh, is always yeah. worth reading. Mm. Eddie Campbell, I think, was the artist. But the, yeah. the thing about Alan Moore, what he manages to basically string everything to do with Jack the Ripper together into <laughs> this one big, long story. And you can get it all combined. That's a good one. And then I also recommend uh, tracking down the DVD for uh, Murder by Death. It's about an eccentric millionaire uh, inviting parodies of all the uh, Hollywood and uh, mystery sleuths. Right. And then challenging them to solve a murder. Is it a comedy? It's very much a comedy. If you want to see Alec Guinness. Uh, and I do. Uh, yeah, he's <laughs> in it as the butler. Peter Falk as uh, Sham Diamond. <laughs> who, uh, who, just one more question. Just, and throughout the whole thing, hints that Sham Diamond is perhaps a little uh, light in the loafers. So it's just, just <laughs> bizarre. Why did you slip from Colombo into Bob and I Doug McKenzie I don't McKenzie know. I couldn't, I couldn't finish that. You, really you start Colombo and you totally end, end up Bob and Doug McKenzie. As a matter of fact, Strange Brew is about a murder. It, that true, absolutely. There we go. I, I, <laughs> I have. Uh, I always think of it as a as a movie about a mouse in a in a uh, in a beer bottle. Oh, that's just how it starts, sir. Absolutely, but it's it is a murder kickoff. mystery. It, it is. is a murder mystery. Well, thanks a lot, everyone, for listening. As usual, uh, you can email us at info at causticsodapodcast dot com or comment on our website or go to our Facebook page. And it's very special, super awesome. Thanks to Chris Stewie Stewart for joining us. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, guys.